and welcome to Fat Cat Pod, the show about economic crime, corruption and political scandal. I am your host Amy and this is episode 6. So with episode 6 I'm going to do a bit of a holistic approach with my fat cats and we're going to do a bit of a dive into land ownership and specifically land and property ownership in England. This topic is something that I kind of geek out on as I'm interested in economics of land specifically. So I'm going with something quite close to home today, both literally and spiritually for me. And um, land ownership, uh, particularly in England, uh, but also elsewhere, is a perfect reflection of the concentration of wealth and power in society. So you're going to hear a lot about a lot of fat cats in one hit for this one. And there is this one big, overwhelming scam here going on in that there's a lot of misconceptions that we are fed about property ownership in England and so I'm going to be doing a bit of debunking for that too. So who owns England? Well a guy called Guy Shrubsole has set out to answer that very question in a book entitled Who Owns England? And he's kind of turned this into this big project, aiming to map the entire area, that is England, and piece by piece look at who owns each section of land. This sounds maybe like this would be really obvious and straightforward thing to do, but it's not. And I'll get into why that is in just a moment. Guy Shrubshole is a writer and campaigner born in Newbury, Berkshire in England. Uh, Newbury in Berkshire is, um, I'm trying, like, let's think how I can describe it. Berkshire is a county in England in the southeast of the country. It's, um, it, it neighbours London and basically if you were going to go on a journey from London to Oxford, you would pass through Berkshire. It's um, an area that I would say is very synonymous with um, this idea of England being a green and pleasant land. So um, there are lots of, um, there's essentially this green, very green verdant countryside um, with pockets of these really quaint um, towns and villages uh, littered through the county. So that's kind of the, imagery of Berkshire I guess. Um, There are some sort of major towns in the area as well Um, but yeah that's kind of that's the backdrop of of where we're talking about here and his hometown of Newbury was said to be um, the inspiration for um, his book and project on who owns England. Um, the building of the Newbury Bypass is where my story starts and it's not perhaps the, not the most interesting or glamorous of starts, um, but here we go. Uh, so the building of the Newbury Bypass um, happened in 1998 and when I think about it actually it was probably one of the first like national news stories that I remember that didn't involve um, murder and child abduction. Um, and the building of the Newbury Bypass was really controversial at the time because the road carved through um, countryside and ancient woodland and there were news reports kind of week after week of um, covering environmental protests going on there so basically the bulldozers rocked up um, to uh, take out all these trees and make way for the road and the protesters basically came along with some tents and climbing equipment and scaled the trees that were earmarked to be torn down and just didn't move and the police were down there and the bulldozers were down there and there was this big standoff that went on for weeks and weeks and the news covered that um, fairly re- on a fairly regularly regular basis throughout that time Um, And this event um, did, uh, essentially it was the inspiration for Guy Subsole to wonder and really think about who owned the county, who owned West 
about Berkshire and who were these landowners that allowed the bypass to happen. So it turned out that when Guy Shrubshall did his study on Berkshire, um, when he looked at West Berkshire in particular, um, it turned out that there were just 30 landowners that owned 50% of um, that part of Berkshire. And so it turns out that there were very few people and organisations that had control of extremely large amounts of land. And it's kind of this sort of dark secret and it, it, it kind of then got him thinking about the rest of England. And England being um, on an island and on a relatively small island, we are all given this perception of scarcity and this idea, this very kind of physical idea that there's very, there's limited space. And this mindset feeds into a lot of anxiety about population and migration. And there's a very old anti-immigration argument that the island is full. And this idea of full is not just this abstract idea about resources and how the resources are shared, but also characterised by this very physical idea of um, the fact that we are an island and there is finite space and this, this the island literally being full. Um, so I guess that's why I'm taking kind of a holistic look at my fat cats um, for this one. Um, because it seems that there's this exclusive group of people who have benefited um, for one by kind of having control over really, really large areas of land but also benefiting from this perception that an, this island is full and there's a scarcity of space so that's also I guess in my view the scandal that I'm going to talk about but if you were to do a study on who owns what in England your starting point would be the public record of land ownership in England we do have one, it's called the Land Registry. And going back on my comment about how it's not easy to find out who owns what, um, the reason for that is broadly to do with transparency. So the first problem is that not every piece of land in England is registered. registered. So registration became compulsory a few decades ago, well, more than a few decades ago, um, and compulsory registration is triggered uh, by an event like a piece of land being sold. So you do have land which has not for several decades changed hands and that land remains unregistered so who owns it is not on that public record. The second problem is that you've got to pay to access the register to find out who owns what. And it's said that if you were to go to the land registry and order from the land registry a register for every single piece of land in England, um, so you could find out exactly who owned what, you would need to spend approximately £72 million. And yeah, so it's not a task that, um, you know, every, every, everyone would be able to you would need to 72 million pounds so that's a hell of a lot of money and so although there is public access to this information it's not really in literal terms accessible and there are of course then finally the physical barriers where you couldn't literally just walk the le the breadth and depth of the country um to kind of survey the land and figure out who owned it because you've got physical barriers like massive walls, keep out signs and no trespassing signs. So in England, it's we are kind of fed this very romantic idea about rambling and the right to roam. And I, was, I grew up in the countryside and I certainly um, was given this um, I would say naive belief that if you go out in the countryside walking, um, anyone and everyone could pretty much walk through the countryside and have access to most of the open space. And I do think that most people in England are given this idea as a kid. Um, the reality is, however, 
that by all accounts it's said that only 10% of land in England is open access. Um, and along with this there are some pretty like pretty stark statistics. So two-thirds of the land in England is owned by 0.36% of the population and the area of land is 40 million acres and just 3 million acres of urban plot and when I say urban plot that's residential households and that those 3 million acres of urban plot is shared by 24 million households. So there you go. And there's going to be some more pretty crazy statistics that I will talk about. And um, and then now I'm just going to kind of run through the fat cats who own all of the land by all accounts. So the first landowner I'm going to kick off with are by no stretch a major landowner or the biggest landowner, let's just say, in England, but have a major stake because um, this was kind of the way that land was distributed in the first place and that is the crown and the church. So it said that 0.5% um, of all of the land in England is owned by the church and 1.4% the crown. As you can imagine this is a diminished state of affairs for the church and crown um, you know over hundreds and hundreds of years um, they have they've owned less and less land but as I said um, using land and owning land is all about um, is, is all kind of a reflection of power um, so it's in my view still significant and the crown the royals uh, from time to time will open up sections of their palaces and homes and we all go around there to visit and look at all of the spoils of colonization and we have our green, we have our cream teas, and then um, the cafe closes at four, and we all have to leave. And um, ultimately, we get to look at, enjoy, be part of a very, very tiny amount of the land and resources that these guys own, um, and they own at our expense, of course. Um, I recently watched this show, whilst doing the research for this actually, I watched this show about um, minor royals and the, the, the royals that don't get the benefit of the sovereign grant. Um, the sovereign grant really on a very basic level is the money that the taxpayer pays to the royal family. So there's some of the major royals like the Queen and Prince Charles, um, they directly get from us taxpayers um sovereign grant money uh to do their job as royals i'm saying the inflection on the word job kind of says um a lot about what i think about the job that they do and um also the sovereign grant goes towards paying um for the repair and maintenance of uh the buildings so like Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle and that kind of thing. There are however less senior royals who don't get any of that money and they're expected to work like regular people. But there is this kind of controversy because as um, as you know public officials also um, there's this kind of shady uh, grey area of them using their position as a public official um, to benefit commercially from these kind of arrangements and that's what kind of what the show was about and I could do a whole podcast on that I'm not going to however but the thing that I thought was interesting was um, so in in that documentary Prince Michael who is I say who was he is cousin to the Queen was the spotlight of this show and he lives in one of the apartments in Kensington Palace and his office in response to this whole program um, he made this um, comment about how he lives in Kensington Palace in one of the apartments and pays market rent for the apartment and that really struck me actually whilst doing research for this because I was just thinking about what market rent for an apartment in Kensington Palace would look like 
And the, the whole idea that you could have this concept of market rent for an apartment in Kensington Palace is ridiculous because firstly, you, can, well, firstly, Kensington Palace is a building, is a palace in London, which the access to would be, would be reserved for a very select group of royals and their staff and officers. So a, an, an average Joe could not rock up even if they had all of the money in the world and say, I would like to rent an apartment in Kensington Palace. That's just not an option for even the richest of the rich, Bill Gates, oligarchs, all of that. They couldn't, they couldn't live in Kensington Palace, even if they wanted to. And then secondly, you would need to also assume that someone could go round and value it, like they could go round any other random apartment in Kensington and value it, which just wouldn't happen. And then there is also this kind of grey area of the sovereign grant paying towards the repair and upkeep of these buildings, and you're getting the benefit of that by living in the apartment there. A normal person who owns a house needs to pay towards the upkeep of the building in which they live in. Uh, but that's already been taken care of by the taxpayer. So anyway, that just got me thinking about the way in which there's this justification um, for using these kind of buildings and these kind of resources and then justifying excluding everyone else from the resource and kind of claiming that your entitlement is is okay because you're doing what all the regular people do by paying market rents and stuff like that um and then when i when i think about this kind of thing it just it feels very scammy to me um and yeah it just got me thinking and i was literally researching this and this came up and i was like this is a perfect example of all of this and the land owned by the Crown and the Royals is not particularly transparent, as you can imagine. And the Duchy of Cornwall, so the Duchy of Cornwall is a title inherited by the monarch's eldest son. And yes, when I say son, that's right. Only son, not daughters, which is another conversation. Um, and um, if the monarch has no male child, then the rights of the duchy reverts to the crown and there ain't no duchy. So Prince Charles is currently the duchy of Cornwall and the duchy owns and exercise, exercises rights and privileges over um, Cornwall, the county of Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly, but also elsewhere in England. Um, it's really unclear comprehensively what all of these um, rights and privileges are and um, a lot of these customs in and rules in place um, dictate a lot about um, how power and resources are divided and I feel like in England and when and maybe people outside of England looking at England kind of just think oh yeah there's all this like really cute quirky stuff going on with like the duchies of Cornwall and the royals in Kensington Palace um and it's all just like Harry Potter and it, it is kind of all like Harry Potter and but it's really messed up how you can't just sit down and say right X, Y, and Z benefits the Duchy of Cornwall um, because the list is just endless and it's where you would even start to compile the benefits and the privileges for that role um, is in several different sources um, and so it's almost impossible to really sit down and kind of go through exactly what's what. And ultimately, the Duchy of Cornwall owns a lot of land and finding out exactly what the Duchy owns is not very easy to find out. And uh, on top of that, the Crown also receives grants um, as landowners 
and they have other privileges like they're exempt from corporation tax so yeah it's all kind of screaming um inequality and unfair at this point um and the land owned by the church in england also is not very easy to find out as you can imagine and it's thought that the church own over 100,000 acres totaling a property portfolio of more than two billion pounds um which sounds like a lot um perhaps not huge in the grand scheme as i said it's like one sorry not even a percentage um of the land owned in england but again when we're talking about power and resources that's some clout um, there's also liabilities that the church hold over regular householders. So um, really ba on a very basic level, um, if you live within a certain parish and you live near to the church, the church can turn around to you and say the, the church needs repairing and it's going to cost this much and you have to pay towards the repairs, which is yeah it's just it's kind of nuts um because they have access to all of this money and all of this land and they still go to kind of regular people and get more money um so again there's this question of equality and inequality and fairness um uh yeah and it's just, this is kind of the start of the fat cats that um, I'm going to chat about in this pod. So the next group of landowners that I'm going to talk about are my favourite group, the aristocrats. Um, I can't say that I have the privilege to be among them. Uh, but one would hope and wish, perhaps. So I won't go into a massive history lesson over how aristocrats became aristocrats, uh, but essentially um, the Norman Conquest happened and William the Conqueror came over and he said, huh, okay, now I own all of this land that is England. Um, I kind of want to do this uh, tally, I guess, over what's what. Um, and then they did this kind of tally over what's what and then he essentially divvied out the land to his mates like after he knew exactly what he could divvy out divvied it out to his mates and basically the aristocrats um, are the modern day aristocrats their ancestors were his mates so in, in essence, the land owned by the aristocrats, the land we are talking about, is land that was fought over and land that was acquired by violence. So the aristocrats, it said, own 30% of all the land in England and your regular householder only owns 5% five, five of all of the land in England. Um, the aristocrats owning that 30% um, we are talking about is essentially a, a few thousand people at best. Um, another crazy statistic is that 50% of all of the land in England is owned by less than 1% of the population. Um, the way in which this land was acquired by the aristocrats the aristocracy of England really cemented this idea of class structure which as we all know has its own really really shitty um, hangover in this country and is um, is the reason for a lot of ills <laughs> let's just say but a lot of the um, a lot of these um, stately homes that are owned by the aristocrats aristocrats are um open partly to the public um and we all go around there similar to the royals i guess we all go around there we have cream tea on the lawn we get access to maybe 10 percent of the grounds and 
um, the insides um, and we all nosy and have a look at um, just this opulence and this decadence and the artwork and the, the weird chairs that have been that really need a reupholstering a lot of the time and we, we you know we pay 10 pounds to to get in um so that lord toad of toad hall can finance his new roof because that's really the only way he can do that um but we whilst we're seeing this amazing architecture on display in these country estates um it's very easy to kind of forget the violence that occurred in order for that land to be acquired and then also when we look at the insides and how that wealth accumulated over the um over hundreds of years um in the mix we also have the ill-gotten gains from slavery and it just kind of gives this question mark over um over justice um, and the justice of land ownership and it highlights um, social responsibility about the land as well because yeah um, it's the argument as long as time of these uh, modern day aristocrats are not responsible for the actions and the violence of their ancestors and although that is true they have benefited from that um, on the bottom bottom line is they have benefited from that and perhaps that does create this extra layer of social responsibility now going forward um, and so we are kind of um, fed this idea that the aristocrats are the custodians of the land um, and they pass that through generations and the fact that the modern day aristocrats still own the land um, shows that through the generations um, their ancestors have practiced responsible ownership and responsible use of the land as custodians. This does however become questionable when you see aristocrats selling off parts of their land to facilitate the building of the Newbury Bypass or to facilitate development of homes that the local communities don't want or need and really only benefit um, developers and just generally when you have a shitload of land in the first place and you sell off parts of it you're still gonna have a shitload of land and then you'll probably have more money because you sold off the land and so I think this this idea of um, the landed gentry being custodians and being responsible and perhaps being in the best position possible to be more responsible than everyone else is, is kind of a sham because when they've used and they've sold off land in this way, that's, you know, is that responsible? But then also if you have a lot in the first place and you sell some, you're still gonna have a lot, right? So some um, specific examples uh, now. The Engerfield Estate uh, is 14,000 acres owned by Tory MP. Um, Tory MP, um, just for those that are not English um, or British, um, the Conservative Party, that's the it's kind of the right-wing party in the UK has been the party in power for the last 11 years. Uh, so the Tory MP Member of Parliament, Richard Benyon, um, owns the Engerfield estate of 14,000 acres, and he has an estimated wealth of 100 million pounds. This guy is also in receipt of farm subsidies, which are funded by the taxpayer um, to the sum of approximately 270,000 pounds and the M4, which is a major motorway that goes from London to Wales, flanks most of his estate. Um, my favourite uh, aristocrat now, Richard Grosvenor Plunkett Earl, Earl Drax. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, um, I, I've probably said his name wrong. Fuck it, whatever. Uh, so it sounds like his his name does really sound like comedy old money rich person name 
uh, and I've said it wrong, which says a lot about my class and elegance. Uh, but yeah, there we go. Um, and it's a, it is a legit name though. I, I promise you, it's a legit name. I've said it wrong uh, because I am not of those circles and of that world. Um, and he is the MP, lucky him, for South Dorset. Um, and he owns a 7,000 acre Charlborough estate. And it's an estate that was founded on the profits of sugar and slavery. And the estate boasts having the longest wall in England, uh, built from two million bricks. Um, and um, Mr. Drax opens up his estate to the public a couple of days a year and we can all have a nosy round and pretend we own it and we pretend that we can pretend that we are living in our own version of Downton Abbey enjoying cream teas on the lawn and looking at the spoils of slavery indoors it's it's all very fun so whilst Drax is owning his 7,000 acre Charlborough estate um, he's also very anti-immigration and um, he uh, was a big advocate of um, the UK leaving uh, the EU in the Brexit um, referendum and campaigning for Brexit he said quote I believe as do many of my constituents that this country is full so I've got this image of um, Mr Drax on the turrets of his uh, stately home with his pitiful 7,000 acres and um, his massive wall and there's just where you know as far as the eye can see all he can see is just houses on top of one another and a massive Tesco's and it's just awful and there's just no room for anyone else uh, on this green and pleasant land okay all right Drax is an MP and um, devil's advocate perhaps he was just representing and echoing the concerns of his um, South Dorset constituents by saying the country is full okay sure but I'm just imagining um, perhaps when his constituents go and visit him in his surgery and they tell him that they're worried about immigration and the impact of new development in the area and squeeze on public services and poor infrastructure and lack, lack of jobs, it's probably much easier uh, for Mr Drax just to nod along and make everyone believe that all of these all of the bad stuff is the fault of immigrants instead of reminding his constituents that he owns 7,000 acres of land um, and so we're probably not that crowded after all and that all of these issues are perhaps a result of inequality and chronic underfunding of public services um, it's just probably a much easier conversation for Mr Drax to have to just you know, yes, it's the immigrants, of course, then really question um, his own kind of stake in all of this. So Guy Shrubsoul did a case study on Dorset in his blog, Who Owns England? And it turns out that there are only 10 individual landowners who own one sixth of the entire county. As you guessed, uh, Mr. Drax is among the top 10 individuals and perhaps one of his neighbours and also on the top 10 list is um, the Honourable Charlotte Townsend, who I shit you not, is the only other landowner beside the Queen legally permitted to own swans. So the next time someone says that the Queen owns all of the swans and dolphins or whatever the fuck in England, you have to turn around and say, no, you're wrong. Um, the Honourable Charlotte Townsend also owns some swans. I don't know how many. Um, in addition to the swans, Charlotte Townsend owns a thousand acres in Dorset and then she owns um, a further two very large estates in the Midlands and up north and also has property at Holland Park in London. Um, 
Holland Park is an extremely exclusive um, address in London. So a, another big kind of trope of these um, aristocratic landowners is they are seen by um, the, they are seen by the public, I guess, as um, extremely cash poor and asset rich. Um, I don't know how true this is, to be honest, when we consider the vast amounts of land that they own and the generational wealth accrued over centuries and just the general class privileges that they've um, enjoyed over a really, really long time. But their estates are expensive to manage and aristocratic landowners um, are increasingly trying to find ways um, and ever more creative ways to diversify in order to make um, their land into money spinners without having to sell off like large swathes of it although some of them do sell off some of it I guess um, and then some in recent years have licensed out, licensed out parts of their land to large music festivals um, in Dorset you have Camp Bestival um, which is a festival hosted by the Weald family at Lulworth Cove and um, the land um, that the Weald family have um, has been within their family since the 17th century and spans an area of Dorset um, from, La from the grassy Chalkland downlands uh, to the Jurassic coast. They are also on the top 10 list of Dorset landowners. Um, the Pitt Rivers family um, are make the list as well, owning 7,500 acres in Dorset. Um, it was said that General uh, General Augustus Henry Lane Fox Pitt Rivers, another comedic rich person name, which is real, um, was uh, an army officer and a Victorian anthropologist, um, which probably means if he was a Victorian anthropologist, it means he was probably involved in some really questionable science. But he had a job which was very unaristocratic of him um, and he inherited the Rushmore estate from his cousin in 1880. Uh, his grandson Captain George Lane Fox Pitt Rivers um, is one, was one of the wealthiest man, men in Britain during the 1930s and he was a massive Nazi sympathiser as well. A trust now has legal ownership over the estate um, although the beneficial ownership um, as far as I'm aware, um, the beneficial owners are still the the fam, you know, the family, um, and uh, this trust um, that owns the estate benefits from um, environmental stewardship, a stewardship scheme, an environmental stewardship scheme that's really hard to say together from Defra, and also various tax breaks. So in Britain, another thing that we absolutely love is making scandal out of clam uh, out of claimants receiving benefits, and we love to vilify um, benefit uh, recipients. Um, but when you look at these kind of families, um, I don't know. I just feel like we've got this um, sickness in this country, I guess, of um, vilifying these people. But then it's okay for these rich folks that own loads of land and have all of these class privileges um, to get tax breaks and I just wonder what's the difference but interestingly we've got the owner of the Daily Mail uh, Viscount Rothermore on this top 10 list um, of biggest landowners in Dorset which is perhaps why our national conversation centres around vilifying benefits cheats and not wealthy aristocratic landowners getting tax breaks and tax funded subsidies. So moving on from my favourite group, the aristocrats, um, we have the new money and new money um, individuals are described as, uh, by Guy Shrubshaw, as wealth accrued post-industrial revolution. Um, it's a very wide group of people so it's you know celebrities footballers um, I'm kind of going to go into it um, but essentially this group um, d 
described as new money, own approximately 18% of the land in England. Um, and then when I do first think about new money, I do think of footballers, celebrities, um, and I think, yeah, they've got their own issues with um, ugly houses appearing in really charming historic villages and um, second homes in places like Cornwall, which um, help drive up prices and um, price out rural communities. Um, but I'm not going to be coming for the celebrities and the footballers today on Fat Cat Pod. Maybe I'll save it for another day. Um, today I am coming for a different type of moneyed individual and um, they are the kind of individuals who are collectively responsible for thousands of homes in London in particular being left completely empty and those are the largely wealthy overseas investors. I do want to kind of clarify um, that they are they are amongst this group investors that are homegrown as well um, but it's essentially the people who are investing in property um, in order to treat um, they're essentially treating these homes like high interest return bank accounts than homes so um, not exclusively overseas investors but they probably form most of that group so there's a really long list of um, individuals who own property in central London that they have left that ha that is essentially left empty and amongst those owners are the former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, um, billionaire property developers, um, the Candy Brothers and the Sheikh of Dubai. So the vibe is that these properties are basically London pads and they're left empty for large parts of the year and then when these guys are just like flying in um, for a spot of shopping in Harrods, they'll that they, you know they'll get their uh, their team to make the ha you know to dust off the um, you know dust the curtains and um, uh, take the sheets off the furniture and all of that jazz um, so that they can stay there for a couple of days rather than you know because going to a hotel is super like low class bougie I don't know. Um, and they, they won't rent those properties out, you know, they don't do sharing. They literally, other than when they're just popping in, um, and popping into London that is, they just literally leave the place empty. Maybe there's a security guard that is looking at the place um, and they pay them to just make sure that, that the squatters don't come in. And some of the owners of these um, London pads are extremely shady characters being family members of kleptocratic politicians across the world. And so the source of the funds that are used to purchase these properties are sometimes very dubious. Um, and there are several issues with um, empty properties, of course, um, aside from um, potentially those properties being bought up facilitating money laundering these properties are also both a symptom and a cause of a housing crisis with many people priced out completely of the market and um, I think the stark um, highlight of this is um, the aftermath of the Grenfell fire so and um, that was a tower block in London which um, caught fire and um, many many people lost their lives and the um, survivors of that fire were left homeless of course and um, that fire occurred in the borough of Kensington and Chelsea where there is a very large concentration of these empty homes owned by these like really really wealthy overseas investors and many of the survivors were left homeless for m several months and you just have this ridiculous contrast of these you know all these really really large luxury empty properties and then this community that are just left completely homeless and then the other problem um, with these empty homes is that the demand for these types of homes um, 
is within these very exclusive areas of London and it's very concentrated. And so um, you've got kind of like, you end up with this situation of streets and streets of empty homes and you can just walk through streets in London and the only lights on in the evening are the street lights. Um, there's no, it's, it's kind of really eerie actually. Um, and there's no lights on in the houses because no one lives there. They're just empty homes. And it just, it, it's very um, desolate and eerie, but also it fragments the community to the point that there is no, there's no community, like no one lives there. Okay, so some more crazy statistics because that's always fun. Um, I've done a kind of tally up of um, percentages for those previous landowners and just kind of um, on that on that front, you've got 8% of all of the land in England owned by the public sector. Um, that's in a huge decline. Um, so the public sector had a, a much larger stake in that historically. Um, and that over the last 40 years that has declined. And I've always had this perception and I might, I might not be alone in this, uh, that the National Trust, um, along with other conservation projects like, um, I want to say like English heritage, have like a shitload of land. Like I've always just thought that they own a lot and they do, but it's only 2%, interestingly, which I thought, yeah, I kind of just thought that'd be more than that. Um, and then we've got 18% um, of all of the land in England um, being owned within various corporate structures and then some of those structures are um, pretty opaque and involve offshore companies so again there's kind of this um, uh, questionable um, ownership of a lot of land here uh, potentially those acquisitions uh, facilitating money laundering and also just really shady structure in terms of um, tax arrangements uh, potentially there uh, similar to the new money and the overseas investor I guess um, so um, yeah it's a pretty bleak picture here and um, I guess what can be done so um, it's essentially this is a, a real stark um, reminder of the uh, just rampant inequality at the heart of England um, and um, it's not just on individual levels but um, it's it looks it's it's very systemic and um, the, the thing that it make the reason why it's important I guess is that um, land ownership in very in a very physical sense excludes others um, and then it also er erodes a potentially um, it, by excluding others um, you've also got this idea of um, land being used in a way which um, destroys and ignores public goods uh, like environment the environment or the needs of local community um, so in essence the answer to this is some kind of land reform but there's a lot of debate on what that is and what that looks like. Um, a really popular um, proposal for balancing inequality um, from economists has been um, this idea of land value tax. Um, land value tax is, um, as far as I'm aware, there are other countries which have a concept of this. I think, I want to say Denmark is one of those countries. Um, but so for land value tax is a tax which taxes landowners based upon the value of the land itself and not the structures built on the land. And it's, um, it's a tax which um, focuses on unimproved land. And the reason why it's uh, favoured by economists is that it also, it removes this uh, economic um, inefficiency in land and this idea that you can just sit there and do nothing and um, 
basically reap the benefits of increasing land values um, but not actually do anything to improve that land or oh, if anything um, and, and if, if anything uh, kind of use that land in a way that's detrimental to the community around you as well so a good example of this are um, housing developers who will strategically buy up land and then um, choose to build uh, quite strategically around a timetable which maximizes their profits um, but doesn't actually um, kind of take into account uh, the need of a local community um, so it just looks at the bottom line at the expense of everyone else um, whereas a, a land value tax in that kind of situation um, might um, put some more pressure on developers to utilize the land that they have in a positive way that um, benefits everyone and not just their bottom line some other um, ways that can improve this current situation i guess um, is reform on registration um, to improve the process of transparency and also this um, re-examination i guess on subsidies and tax breaks for really really major landowners uh, because it it's it seems a little bit scandalous that um they kind of get a bit of a break there um when they have so much wealth and so much land and so much power um but i guess one massive issue with what can be done and whether that will be done is that we're talking about legislative reform and um I just don't know if there's a political that the the people in in charge I guess the government and the MPs that get to have a vote on this kind of thing um, amongst them are some of the really big landowners um, and they're certainly their class of people um, so yeah <laughs> i mean they have to i can't imagine them at the moment i can't imagine the situation where they would vote to hurt their individual interests so there we go that's i just don't i feel like um ref, some reform is needed but it's sort of a non-starter because they're going to be voting against their own interests and that never happens in politics right owns the land he who bought it or i who am possessed by it that's it that's the land episode i hope you like this kind of more holistic approach i'm going to do some sort of thematic episodes in future about a, a couple of other things um and um yeah next week i don't actually know what i'm gonna do next week so <laughs> i'll just leave it there next week there'll be some more fat cats featured um and discussed so i hope you enjoyed um please rate review subscribe follow wherever you listen to podcasts and um i'll catch you next time <laughs>